Love Talk Radio.
I would I would actually travel, and when I lecture, I would wear this armband. Most fascinating thing, but you know, I mean, you said it best. I mean, Ida B. Wells again was a face of many, and she was really um, on the path of wanting to stop the injustices that have been committed on African American people in this country. And she started the anti-lynching campaign to do just that. When there was a lot of other people who were standing behind the lines and not doing yeah. anything, she was in the forefront, and she pushed this anti-lynching campaign, which was actually catered to many of the women. It was women doing mm-hmm. this at first. And um, so that's what's the most amazing things of, um, about her anti-lynching campaign. It was it was a collaborate with black women being involved yeah, yeah. with this mission to stop lynchings of African-American males. And I, I have to say, all yeah. those things inspired me in what I do today. For those who just tuned in to the Gist of Freedom, this is a show normally hosted by Leslie Gist, but she gave me the honor, the distinct honor, on her blog talk radio show to interview Mr. Keith Beauchamp. Now, for those of you who don't know who Keith Beauchamp is, this is a man who has followed in the footsteps of Ida B. Wells, a man who's followed in the footsteps of Paul Robeson and Albert Einstein in terms of what they did in 1946 in connection with this whole anti-lynching thing. So you hear the name Ida B. Wells, you hear the name Paul Robeson, you hear the name Albert Einstein, then you say, well, who is this guy, Keith Beauchamp? Well, if you don't know, you should know. He's an investigator investigative filmmaker, and to just say he's an investigative filmmaker doesn't do him justice. I mean, here's a man who was interviewed by none other than Ed Bradley in 60 Minutes. He's been featured on The Injustice Files. Not only has he done this thing that we're going to talk about now regarding Emmett Till, but he's done extensive work in connection with modern-day lynching. Um, Raynard Johnson and uh, 61-year-old Izell Parrott and a more recent case, a Warfest Jackson. I mean, these are names you never heard of, Keith Warren in Silver Spring, Maryland. You might say, well, who are these people and how could they have been victims of lynching and I never heard about it? The reason you never heard about it is because you didn't take the time to listen to what Keith Beauchamp has been talking about. So let's do this, Keith. Let's talk first about Emmett Till. Now, before you get into why you actually begin to investigate this and look into it, let's start toward the end. I understand that based on the powerful facts and evidence that you were able to compile in the murder of Emmett Till, that this was presented to the U.S. Department of Justice. Sadly, though, I understand that a prosecutor for the Justice Department, a black female, Joyce Childs, I believe her name is, they decided that, well, yeah, Mr. Beauchamp has given us some stuff, but it's not enough, so we're not going to pursue it. Let's start at the end and talk about that and work okay. our way back. What exactly well, did you present to the Justice Department, and what exactly did they do in response? Okay. Well, Michael, I'm glad you asked that question. There was a couple of things that I have to say um, about this. Uh, one, it wasn't just Justice Department that received informa- information on what I discovered during my investigation of an immaterial murder case. It was also mm-hmm. the state of Mississippi. So it was oh, a collaboration okay. done by the state of Mississippi as well as as the FBI and Justice Department. Joyce Charles. So you covered all your bases. Yes, yes. Okay. So Joyce Charles was actually the DA over the county where the murder took place. Mm-hmm. in Sunflower County. She didn't work with the Justice Department. Um, basically, the Justice Department came in at the time, well, the FBI came in at the time of the reopening of the case. Um, 
before that, I was already discussing the evidence that I had on the Till case with local and state authorities as well as the FBI behind this sentence. And this is before 2004. In fact, it was in 2002 where those conversations actually began. And um, it wasn't until 2004 where, of course, my film was released in theaters and then later on went to television. But, hey, but before um, you go on, Keith, before you go on, tell yeah. the listening audience, what's the name of your documentary? I'm sorry. The name of my documentary was The Untold Story of Emmett Lewis Till. Uh, you, you probably have seen it recently. Uh, I know yeah. that TV One has been playing it a lot. And, of course, um, during Black History Month, you can see it everywhere. I mean, everybody is playing um, this particular film, which I'm, I'm truly overwhelmed about because, you know, it's a filmmaker's dream to work on a passion such as this. And this is my first, that was my first film, by the way. So well, I, I, I got to tell you, I was blown yeah. away by it. And, you know, when I heard folks say, hey, this is the same guy who's been interviewed by Ed Bradley in 60 Minutes, I said, this is the same guy who's going to be Ed Bradley of 60 Minutes because oh, it's man. that powerful in terms of what you've done. But let's, we're going to come back to the untold story of Emmett Till, but sure. Continue to tell us about this whole investigative thing. What happened in connection with what the Mississippi law enforcement folks did, what the Justice Department did or didn't do? Okay. okay. Well, you know, I have to say in this case, Michael, um, the Justice Department and, 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 of course, the FBI did all they could do in this mm-hmm. particular case. They were 100% behind me and the evidence that I've uncovered. In fact, um, I was made a part of the investigation. So wow. in you know, 2004, when the case actually reopened, I was still working with the case behind the scenes with the FBI even after my film was released. So it was the first time they were ever they actually ever considered working with a filmmaker in that, in that way, and they kept me on because of the knowledge that I had on the case. Um, in 2006, it went to a grand jury. Um, late 2006. This is during the time where the FBI began talking about their civil rights cold case initiative, which which they were going back to revisit a number of these unsolved civil rights murder cases in hopes of of seeing if if some of these cases could could actually be prosecutable. And the reason why they done that, Michael, was because of of, of the impact my film had. On, on the public and, and bringing the public awareness about the immaterial case. Not only that, um, how evidence, they realize how evidence, no matter how long it takes, even after 50 years, could still be in existence. And that's in why fact, they actually fact, sort of... Let, let's do this, Keith, because I certainly want to hear that part of it, but you're kind of minimizing and downplaying what you have done in this whole thing. I mean, here you are, Keith Bosham, who's actually getting the state of Mississippi, the Justice Department of the United States of America, and the FBI to look into something that they could have done on their own. What was it that you did? What was it that you had that would get this powerful state, this powerful entity, and the federal government to finally do something? Tell us the secret. You know, it you know it had a lot to do with Michael connections. Uh, you okay. know, all this stuff. You know, we know in our community, we community, we always talk about how things are so political. People yeah. make political moves, and in this case, it wasn't necessarily a political move, but it was about all of who you knew. I mean, it, I'm talking in terms of what connections did you have 
you mm-hmm. know, with the Justice Department or local state authorities. And, you know, early on I began those connections, and I had someone fortunate to be at my side who was mm-hmm. an activist. If you ever read about Emmett Till and the work that I've done, you will see the name Al- Alvin Sykes. And Alvin and I formed the Emmett Till Justice Campaign to really push forward the Emmett Till case. He came great, into my great. life actually two weeks before Ms. Uh, actually, I'm sorry, a week before Mrs. Mobley passed away, and then I had a great team behind me. I had mm-hmm. Kenneth Thompson of Thompson Rigdor and Gilly, who's who's a powerful attorney here in New York, um, mm-hmm. at my you know at my side, um, as well as support of many civil, uh, civil rights organizations, as well as support from sororities and fraternities, and that's what was okay. so great about this particular case was that I was able to galvanize the public behind my efforts, including Charles Schumer, Senator Schumer. Is that right? Behind me. Yeah. And, and the way it happened was Senator Schumer came in to support uh, support me and to push Congress to and, and, um, and the U.S. Senate to reopen the case. So he was 100% behind me from the beginning, and then city councils began to pass resolutions across the country in support of my efforts in getting the material case. Wow. So I'm saying to you, Michael, I can't take all the credit. Okay, okay. It was a collective effort by a number of key people who came in to help me, and we were successful in doing it. Well, i got to tell you. you, No, go ahead, please. Go on. Now, getting back to the case in, in general, in 2006, after we, from 2004 to 2006, early 2006, we led an investigation into the murder of Emmett Till. At the time, there was up to five people who were still alive who could have been prosecuted. By the time the grand jury hearing started, um, basically um, there were two people that we were keying in on. And those two people was one, Carolyn Bryant, that the white woman that Emmett Till whistled at at the time, as well as one of the black fill hands, Henry Lee Loggins, who was forced to participate. Now, having these two people that you're looking at as possible suspects and looking at to indict, you know, I knew it was going to be a challenge. But we were looking to indict those two people on culpable homicide. And I know your well, audience is saying, go ahead. Well, Keith, before you go, let me just ask you a few questions. I got to tell you, I thought I knew everything there was to know about the Emmett Till case until I saw your documentary, and I said I didn't know anything. So I want to address some of those now, and if we have time, we're going to hear from the listening audience. By the way, speaking of listening audience, those of you who just tuned in, you're listening to investigative filmmaker and journalist Keith Bosham. He's a man who did a documentary called The Untold Story of Emmett Lewis Till. And it's not just that. If you've watched The Injustice Files, you've seen his work regarding other lynchings in modern-day America, Raynard Johnson and um, Keith Warren, along with Warfest Jackson and a number of other folks. And we're going to try to get into that if we can. But right now... Uh, Keith Beauchamp is telling us about how he got the state of Mississippi, how he got the federal government to investigate this, and now we're at the point of the grand jury. But, Keith, before you get into that, I had heard that you had named potentially 14 uh, suspects. Let's talk about that. But also, you mentioned... um, Two just now, Karen Bryan, the uh, wife of the man who apparently did the actual murder, and Henry Lee Morgan. Now, Henry Lee Morgan, a black man, how could he possibly be a suspect? 
Henry Lee Loggins was his name. Well, Michael, I mean, just to go and, and, and tell your audience who, who probably are not familiar with all the evidence I had on the case, one yes. thing I discovered, um, and, and this is how great history is, because I only went back and studied the information that was gathered by people like Megar Evers, Amber okay. Moore, Dr. T.R.M. Howard at the time, um, actually, Charles, uh, not Charles, I'm sorry, um, um, Mr. Hicks of the Baltimore Afro-American newspaper, newspaper okay. at the time. And um, basically, Jimmy Hicks is what I'm trying to get at. And okay. I, just, I just went back after I received the FBI files on the case, and I saw all the correspondence that was going on between our civil rights leaders of that day as well as James Hicks. And James Hicks was on something. He's, he was actually the one that discovered that black men were involved. And Whoa. nobody ever Whoa. talked about it. Nobody, nobody ever talked about it. He had correspondence. You can see the correspondence within the FBI records where he's going back and forth while he's, in, while he's in Mississippi during the trial. He's mm-hmm. sending this communication back to um, the FBI, and no one seemed to listen, which is truly remarkable to me. But on wow. the ground, you had Mega Evers, Amzie Moore, Ruby Hurley, all these great NAACP field secretaries in Mississippi that was actually going and trying to search for the African-American men at the time who were involved. And, who, and they were hoping to bring them um, back to the court of law during the trial so they could be possible witnesses in getting the other men convicted. And see, I'm, I'm so glad you made that clear. So these weren't necessarily suspects. Uh, these black folks were named. These were potential witnesses. Is that right? In, in, in some ways, they were. And I have to okay. say this to you, because we don't know the mindset of, of those people. Of, I say, say all of those people, but we don't know the mindset of, of African Americans in this particular area at the time. I mean, I, I have a clear sense of the mind yes. at the time mm-hmm. because we're talking about the Delta, of Money Mississippi, 1955. We're okay. talking about the cotton capital of the world. So you know, African Americans and, and you know there were tenant farmers and there were field hands in those areas, still kind of living under the condition of slavery. Yes, in a sense. absolutely. Okay, so you know one of the major battles was when I came up with this information. And by the way, throughout my research for nine years, I discovered it was up to 14 people that was involved with the kidnapping and murder of, of, of Emmett Till. And five of these people were actually black men who were forced to participate, who I believe was forced to participate. Yeah. And, and I got to tell you, I'm, I'm so I'm I'm so glad you made that clear uh, because when I first heard that in connection with some of the stuff you put out there, I said, well, there has to be some merit to it because you wouldn't have said it if it wasn't. But I'm an attorney, a criminal defense attorney, and yeah. I know that one defense that exists in every state is the defense of duress, and duress means, for example, <laughs> yeah. Keith committed the bank robbery, but he did it because Michael Cord had Keith's wife held hostage back at home. So, yeah, people can commit crimes, but if they're forced to do it under duress, that's a whole different thing. Um, there's a yeah. lot of stuff we want to get to. Let me just ask you first about oh, yeah. um, the injustice files. What is that? Sure. Is it something that you produced? Is it something that you're a part of? Talk a little bit about that yeah. before we get into some other issues. 
Well, the Injustice Files is actually my new series. Um, many of your listeners probably have followed my work for some time. You know, Emmett Till was my first major uh, documentary, you know, as a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And from there, it led me to do, you know, led me into a partnership uh, with the FBI, actually helping the FBI with civil rights case cases great, on great. civil rights murders. So what I've been doing is doing the same thing like I did with the Emmett Till case, producing documentaries and television mm-hmm. series on okay. these um, particular murders in hopes of setting a justice-seeking atmosphere up that will allow witnesses to come forward like I did with the Emmett Till case. So what and, the, from, go ahead. and the Injustice Files, that can be seen on the ID channel? That could be seen on the ID channel. Um, actually, we'll we'll be back with a two-hour special Great. on February 21st, which is this Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern. Um, yeah, Keith, you, so, you got to repeat so, that because I know folks got their okay. pens and pads and they're scrambling. Tell them when they can see it. The Justice Files at the End of a Rope is is my second installment to the original Injustice Files that airs on Investigation Discovery. We will be returning this Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern. And this is a show that you do not want to miss. This is probably the most controversial thing that I ever touched in my life next to Emmett Till. You know, in, in terms of controversy, and I'm so glad you mentioned that, Keith, because one of the controversial issues involving Emmett Till was the open casket. Um, and I know you've done extensive work. Tell us a little bit about Emmett's mother's decision um, to have this open casket, because a lot of folks listening to us now, I'm sure many of them were not born at the time this took place. I mean, when you talk about the 50s and you talk about Mississippi, that's a million years ago and that's a million miles away. So let's assume that folks know nothing about Emmett Till, know nothing about 1955, know nothing about the South and Mississippi. Tell us about the open casket and why, from your research, his mother allowed that horrifically gruesome face to be displayed for the world well many of us have heard about uh, I, I would hope by now we've heard about the photograph of Emmett Till or been able to see that photograph mm. yeah. that photograph of course sparked my interest in the work that I'm doing now it has created me in terms of being a filmmaker and I can honestly tell you if it wasn't for me seeing that photograph at age 10 there would not be a Keith Beauchamp filmmaker today. There wouldn't be. And I can now, Keith, let, let's assume that some folks have not seen it. To the extent okay. that words can do justice to the disfigured face, tell us what you saw when you looked at it, what it reminded you of. i got to tell you, it reminded me of some horror film. How did it affect you? Yeah. Well, here I am, 10 years old, going in my parents' study, seeing all these vintage what I consider to be vintage magazines. Mm-hmm. I pick up a jet magazine with this angelic face of this little boy on the front of it, open okay. the pages, and I see this kid again, a mirror image that I believe to be like myself, of course. And then on the other side of this page was this her- horrific monster photograph, this mm. disfigured being that was actually the little kid I just saw on the page previously. So to see something like that at 10 years old, I was just shocked. And I just needed to know what this picture was. And it was just so happy my parents was home when I opened that magazine and they saw the reaction that I had on my face, this reaction of this horrific reaction and and this reaction of fear 
they came in and explained that story to me. Mm-hmm. Throughout my life, the name Emmett Till would often be, you could often hear it in my house. You know, and in especially fact, when, go ahead. Let's do this, Keith, because I want to make sure we cover everything, and I want you to explain everything, I mean, extensively, yeah. but... You know, you assume, and I assume, and every right-thinking black person assumes that folks know the story of Emmett Till. Just spend a minute or two, Keith, getting into the background. What happened, and how was he killed, and ultimately, how did his face get like it did? Just give us two or three minutes of background in terms of what happened and how he wound up with his face like that. Emmett Till was a 14-year-old black Chicago youth who in 1955 went to the Deep South of Money, Mississippi, to visit his southern relatives. Within a week's time, Emmett would be abducted, tortured, and murdered for one of the oldest taboos of the South, which is addressing a white woman in public. In this case, Mm. he whistled at a white woman in public. Two of the men, one, the, the store owner's, um, I'm sorry, the store owner's wife was the woman that Emmett Till whistled at, and the store owner and his half-brother decided that they wanted to teach Emmett a lesson. Of course, that lesson ended up him being murdered. Emmett's mm. body was found in the Tallahatchie River tethered to a 90-pound gin fan, mm. and his body was resurfaced three days after he was tortured and murdered and thrown into the river. Whoa. Of course, what makes this case big, because I want you listeners to understand, Emmett Till became the spark that galvanized the civil rights movement. And I say this because we all know the stories of Dr. Martin Luther King and Rosa yes, Parks. Yes, yes, The great Rosa Parks had made her courageous decision not to get up from, a, get up from that bus uh, her seat on that bus in Montgomery, Alabama in 1955. But people don't realize that her decision to do this was because Emmett Till was foremost in her mind. Wow. Dr. King. We all know Dr. King. His decision to take on the Montgomery bus boycott wasn't just because of what happened to Rosa Parks and the unrest that was going on in Montgomery. It was because of the murder of Emmett Till as well. He felt that the murder of Emmett Till was an intimidation factor to keep black people away from the polls because 1955 was a huge election year. To go even further right quick so everyone can understand the context of of the spirit of Emmett Till, August 28th, which is the which was the great day of the march on Washington. A lot of people don't realize that that date was specifically chosen in memory of Emmett Till. Emmett Till was murdered on August 28, 1955. And of course, the march on Washington took place on that exact date. Mm-hmm. And that was because of A. Philip Randolph, who became very instrumental in getting, you know, wanting to, uh, helping the late Mrs. Maynard Till Mobley, I should say, to get justice in her son's murder. Now, you would say, okay, Keith, there's been so many murders during this time. There were, there were so many kids who were murdered during this day in 1955, and you're right. But what made this case so significant and so different 
was the courageous act of the late Mamie Till Mobley, who decided to have an open casket funeral so the world could see what happened to her son. And I say this, the world, because the Emmett Till case wasn't just an American case or a United States murder. It became an international story. Yes, yes. It became so huge where you had people writing from Russia, Italy. Everyone was coming and trying to get justice for this little boy, this 14-year-old boy. And, you know, that's the story within itself. I mean, I can I can go on and on, Michael, because what? Well, no, I mean, and, and we appreciate you filling in the blanks because, again, you know, a lot of times, folks over thirty or forty years old, we think the younger generation knows the stuff that we were taught, but many of them don't know. Before we move on to other incidents regarding lynching, I just want to ask you and just give you an opportunity to talk about the trial. Uh, I'm sure people are saying, well, if a fourteen-year-old boy was brutally murdered and tortured, and the body was found three days later, certainly there was a trial. And certainly the guilty parties were found guilty. Tell us about the trial and the outcome. Well, unfortunately, that, that you know, we would have loved to, to end this story in that manner. But in 1955, there was an all-white, all-male jury that sat in the courtroom and heard the arguments. And we we're talking about, again, the deep south of the Delta of Money, Mississippi, which is a cotton, one of the cotton, well, it's known to be the cotton capital of the world during that, during that time. And not, not during that time, but even now. Yeah. So we're talking about a time where this area of Mississippi is where this Dixie crack hatred comes mm-hmm. from. Yes, we're sir. talking about a place where it was considered to be the free state, not in particularly the whole state of Mississippi, but in this particular area, it was known to be the free state, which meant that no outside influences could come in to change anything. Nobody. So even the federal government. That's how, you know, this place was locked down. But, of course, um, throughout the trial, you had not only one trial, you had two trials. You had a kidnapping trial, and you also had the murder trial. Now, the murder trial took place before the kidnapping trial. Now, mm-hmm. we already know, if you know the story of Emmett Till, we know that the men committed the crime. They confessed to kidnapping Emmett Till. So, unfortunately, no true bill was passed because they claimed there was insufficient evidence. Now, we have, again, you had these white men who confessed yes. to kidnapping Emmett Till, but they were not charged. But the murder trial itself was a, 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 a historic moment that I wish everyone could read on, read up on, because it was a great miscarriage of justice. Here you had the great most right, and I'm glad you mentioned this, Michael, because the interesting thing about the Emmett Till case, you had so many heroes and beginning of, begin, of the beginnings of people that we will come to know later and love as heroes and sheroes. And I'm talking about people like Megger Evers. You know, yeah, this is like yeah. one of his major cases he dealt with. And um, so, you know, a lot of our listeners, don't, if you don't know the story until you don't know much about the background, but in particular, the, the, the courtroom, the, the, the atmosphere, I mean, you, here are these all these country, country bumpkins yes. sitting around with an all-white, all-male jury. Yep. They deliberated. They're all smoking, drinking beer, drinking soda, Coca-Cola, sitting in the, in the jury's quarter, jury quarters, 
mm-hmm. and they had already made their mind up. They were not mm. going to convict Southern men. They were not going to do it. Southern white men, they were not going to convict. And that's what happened within the immaterial case. So, you know, of course I had hope that after all said and done with this new investigation going on and, and we finally go to a new grand jury, things would change. Of course, unfortunately, it did. they did. We were hoping to get Carolyn Bryant on culpable manslaughter charges, which I feel that there was enough evidence to convict her. But you can never change the mind of the people who live in that area. You can Great never point. change the mind of the peers, uh, uh, you know, in that in that particular area who was on that jury. And that's that was the most frustrating thing for me, Michael, because so often, and and not should say so often, but for so many years, we always. Especially if you're African American, if you your son of civil rights, or you connected to civil rights in some way, or activism, you don't trust the FBI. <laughs> you know? no, no doubt, so no doubt. It, it, it took me a while to to get over that and to to look at the FBI with with a different face and say, okay, they're trying to do something. But in this particular case, the FBI did all they could. We we brought the evidence and handed over our findings to the state and local mm-hmm. authorities. And it was in the hands of the DA that you mentioned, who was African-American. And she presented the case. And, of course, it ended up with insufficient evidence and, and uh, with the jury passing the no-true bill. Okay, now, okay. I could go into the politics of that, but it's going to take all night. <laughs> but <laughs> Carolyn Bryant Bryan was guilty as charged. She should have been convicted. And, unfortunately, Henry Lee Loggins was alive, and he was being considered um, as being indicted as well in the equation. And that was a huge frustrating thing for me because we all know, if you know the history of white supremacy in this country, the white woman stands on the pedestal yes, for sir. white supremacy. And yes. I knew it was going to be a challenge in a southern court, court to actually get a conviction of a white woman. And I'm not, and I'm not trying to be racial. I'm just being yes, real. Yes, yes. And, and that's about the it. history. For and, those and of you who just... For those of you who have just tuned in, you're listening to The Gist of Freedom, normally hosted by Leslie Gist here at www.blogtalkradio.com. We have a wonderful guest today, an investigative filmmaker, brother by the name of Keith Beauchamp. And Keith Beauchamp has begun to walk in the steps of Ida B. Wells and Paul Robeson, along with Albert Einstein. What does he have in common with them? Well, not only a thirst for justice, but an, a real thirst, a serious thirst to make sure that the story of lynching, the real story, be told and that we get justice. He's going into some extensive background about some of the folks who were involved. Uh, he mentioned the recent attempted indictment, and unfortunately nothing came out of it. But knowing Keith the way I know him, he hasn't given up. But, Keith, let's talk about this before we get to some other issues. You mentioned the Henry Lee Loggins character. And, uh, you know, just so we're clear, because I got to tell you, one of the things you said, a lot of stuff that has enlightened me, it's stuff I had no idea about. I had heard a little bit about this Henry guy, this Henry Lee guy, and now know the guy's name, Henry Lee Loggins. But just so I'm clear, and just so the listening audience is clear, I understand from what Leslie has told me and others have said that not only was this guy never a real suspect, 
everybody understood that to the extent that he might have had any involvement, that he was under duress and that there were folks threatening to kill him before and after. What's your response to that based on your extensive investigation? Well, well, one thing that we know for a fact is that Henry Lee Loggins was on the back of the truck holding Emmett Till down with another black field hand. We know that mm, as a fact. Okay. We also, okay. also found a witness who um, actually was um, walking along um, the community, and he, he came up on the truck where Henry Lee Loggins and another black field hand was washing blood from the truck, and he asked the question where all this blood came from. And they looked at the kid, and they said to him, well, we caught a deer last night, and we killed the deer. Yes. So, yes. you know, I, this is this was probably the most difficult thing that I had to actually deal with in terms of communicating with the FBI, because when we were looking at people to indict, you know, I really didn't want to have to go after Henry Lee Loggins, yes. to put it yes. plain and simple. However, Henry Lee, regardless if we believe or not that he was forced, and I say regardless if we believe or not, because I wasn't there, mm-hmm. and I had a I had a had a, a moment. I mean, I said a moment. I had an opportunity to interview Henry Lee Loggins, and when oh, I interviewed you? him, yes, I, he's he's actually in the told story of Emmett Till. Okay, and I interviewed him, but you only see ten minutes in the film. But okay. I interviewed him for over an hour. Mm-hmm. And I went through this whole thing, a spill, about his involvement with the case. Of mm-hmm. course, he denies it in a sense, but then there were moments when I caught him in line. For instance, during the trial in 1955, no one could find these black men who were involved. And mm-hmm. it was said that they were actually put in jail against their will by one of the racist sheriffs in the area and put under different names so no one could find them. I got you. And that was some of the information I came across by looking at Jimmy Hicks' works with all the writings that he did on the Emmett Till case. So I mm-hmm. asked those questions, and he told me, in fact, that he was in jail, hidden, because of what he knew about the Emmett Till case. And, you know, as I spoke with him, I asked him what type of people was – J.W. Milam and Roy mm-hmm. Bryan, who was the two known assailants, and he told me his boss was James, uh, uh, well, his his boss was um, actually J.W. Milam. So when I okay. asked him about J.W. Milam, he was like praising this guy. And then when I went into how he got into jail, how, how were you arrested and put in jail, he told me that J.W. Milam set him up. So okay. I'm like, you know, yeah. so it kind of threw me off, Michael. It threw me off yeah. because I'm trying to get the story from this man. And he could have been afraid, even after 50 years later, and I know he was. It was just the fact that he lied to me. And, you yeah. know, but to, when we're talking about on the legal end of things, and let's go straight to that, and then we could just kill, kill this, this part of the story. <laughs> okay. We don't you know, know his def- state of mind. You know, That's he a great could have point. just he he could have been just as mad as the local, you know, southern white boys during that time because here was this northern kid from Chicago coming into my community and causing problems for all of us. Now mm. Mm. and it. I say this because you have to look at it on both sides of the coin. And I, I never, I'm never biased when I investigate cases or I tell stories. 
and I'm all about facts. But it came to a point in time when I was asked, what would I do in this situation? Regardless of the fact, Henry Lee Loggins had a choice. It may not have been a great choice. He could have been murdered because he didn't participate, but he had a choice. And after all these years, when I located him, and he still lied to me, I was like, you know, let chips fall where they may. And that's what I felt. Well, well, let me say this. Certainly, you've done more work on this case than anybody I know of, anybody I've read about. Uh, But I will say this. As a lawyer myself, I talked about the defense of duress. Well, yeah, somebody can go commit a crime, but if you've been compelled or otherwise forced to do it, then you don't have what they call the mens rea, the evil intent. And what we're talking about in connection with Henry Lee Loggins reminds me of a guy named Clyde Manning. Clyde Manning was a guy who worked on a uh, sharecropping farm back in uh, 1921 in Alabama. It's a very long story. To make a long story short, the owner of the plantation, John Williams, was holding the black sharecroppers in modern-day slavery. And somehow the NAACP found out about it. They related to the Justice Department. The Justice Department investigated it. When the Justice Department officials came to this plantation, sharecropping plantation in Alabama in 1921, they questioned John Williams, said, hey, we hear that you're holding people against their will as if they were slaves. And there was a black overseer who worked there by the name of Clyde Manning. And after the Justice Department officials left, they said they were going to come back. When they left, the white owner, John Williams, said to Clyde Manning, the black overseer, you better get rid of the evidence or I'm going to get rid of you. What did Clyde Manning do? He brutally bashed 11 black people in the head with gigantic rocks, threw them into the Alcove River, killing them. Now, folks look at that and say, well, Clyde Manning did that, but he only did it out of duress. That was clearly egregious and malicious, but he wouldn't have done it on his own. Now we go back, or I should say forward, fast forward to Henry Lee Loggins. If you talk about duress in a case like what took place in 1921 in Alabama, where a black man killed somebody at the behest of a white man, what we have here with Henry Lee Loggins I think is even stronger on his behalf, because you know better than I do, Keith, that in Mississippi in the 50s, that wasn't a town, that wasn't a county, that wasn't a state, that wasn't even a country, that was a planet in and of itself. Whatever they said, that was it. So I could see Henry Lee Loggins saying, hey, I got to live here, I got to work here, I got family here, so if this white man tells me to hold this kid down, I'm going to do that. But the one thing, and I'm going to ask you this specifically before we jump to another issue, to the extent that Henry Lee Loggins might have held down uh, Emmett Till, there's no evidence, I'm asking you, of him actually being involved in the physical murder itself that apparently took place the next day sometime between 2 and 3 a.m. Is that right? Well, as as I know, he was not physically involved with okay. killing him. He was only there to hold him until. Now, okay. there was another black fill hand um, that we haven't talked about, which is Leroy Toots Collins, who actually was given the gun to mm. shoot in the till. Whoa. So, you know, some of this information, I, I would have to say, will come out um, very soon. I'm actually getting ready to produce the feature film on the Emmett Till murder case uh, with the help 
of, of, of uh, Fred Zolo, who produced Mississippi Burning and Ghosts of Mississippi. So this is okay. something that I've been trying to do for many years, and all the evidence that I discovered on this case, a lot of it hadn't even been put into my documentary, but all the evidence that I've discovered on this case will be put in the future so the world will have an opportunity to see what, exactly what happened because no one has any idea that the story of Emmett Till is not what people believe it to be. It's a whole other twist to it. So, and, um, I mean, so that's I, clearly true because you're providing some information that even I didn't know about, and um, i got to tell you, I'm blown away by it, and I'm hoping that uh, Leslie can present an opportunity sometime in the future to have you back to talk about more stuff. But let me just ask absolutely. you this. In terms, in terms of the investigation that took place to the extent that it was in 1955 and the more recent investigation, what I mean by that is how much real investigation was done in 1955? Because I understand that one of the defenses that was presented by the defense attorney is that my clients can't be guilty of murder because there's no proof that this body here is the body of Emmett Till. And if we don't have Emmett Till's yeah. body, then we don't have a murder. So talk a little bit about the uh, investigation that took place then, say, beginning in 1955, and then what happened more recently when you got the Justice Department and the FBI in Mississippi involved. Talk a little bit about that. Well, that's interesting that you said that, Michael. I'm glad you did done a lot of research on this, man. You followed. <laughs> the okay. reason why I say that is because of the fact that, um, of course, the reason why um, Roy Bryan and J.W. Mallow wasn't indicted at the time, the argument, the argument that the defense had was that the body that was pulled from the river was not that of Emmett Till. Mm. And Mrs. Mobley, during that time, even after the trial was pushing to have an exhumation done of the body, and she wanted, you know, an autopsy done, and it was never done. So, you know, one of the things to fast forward to 2005, one of the main things that we did in, in particular with this case was that we exhumed the body. Okay. And we exhumed the body just because of that fact. That that The reason, well, there's two reasons, and I could talk about the other reason because the case is closed now. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the reasons why we were, we actually exhumed the body of Emmett Till was the, because um, we wanted to, to lay all the rumors of rest that the body was that of Emmett Till because 1955 okay. they were saying that it wasn't. And the other reason was the, because of the fact that I was given the gun that was used to kill Emmett Till. And we wanted to run ballistics. And we discovered that the gun that was actually um, giving to me, not physically, but I was given the location where the gun was, and I sent the FBI there. Um, that gun was, in fact, the gun that was killed, I mean, used to shoot in the gym. Wow. So, wow. And that's, that's why we wanted to run these ballistics, and, you know, it was all hush-hush. It caused a lot of controversy. But mm-hmm. um, that's one of the main reasons why we exhumed the body, to lay to rest the rumors that the body that was pulled from the river was not that of Emmett Till, and, of great, course, great. because of the gun that I was um, able to retrieve for the FBI. Let, let so, me ask you this. Uh, apart from um, 
people like Henry Lee Loggins, um, who you uh, interviewed. Just tell me what you got generally from black people recently, say in the last five years of your uh, doing your investigation. What were black people talking about recently, 2004, 2005, about this? Did they seem to be coming forward with information, or did they still seem timid as if it was 1955 all over again? <laughs> It's it's still that way, Michael, unfortunately, and that's what's quite disturbing to me, that you still have African Americans throughout the South and abroad who are connected to these type of cases who are living in fear. Wow. And that's, that's why I push myself to tackle this work. It took me nine years to actually produce the Emmett Till story, and the main reason it took that long was because of people being fearful and coming forward. And, okay. and I say this okay. because when I was in the Delta and I was meeting these family members um, who who was involved and somewhat connected to the Till case or who knew witnesses to the Till case, you know, it took me some time to convince them to come forward. Okay. And so, okay. you know, so I had to take the filmmaker's hat and throw it to the side and become a human mm-hmm. being among these yeah. people and just yeah. befriend them to the point where they would come forward. And I'll tell you, the missing link, so the immaterial case was Mr. Simeon Wright, who I'm extremely close to, and that's the cousin who actually shared the bed with Till on the night he was abducted. And it took wow. me two and a half years to get him to open up to me because of what history books have written about the case. They had the stories wrong. They blamed the cousins for what happened to Emmett Till, that they dared Emmett Till to go into the store and yes, listen to that yes, Bryant. Yes, All these yes. type. Um, of stories that was written by historians mm-hmm. was all wrong. So they never wanted to talk. They never wanted to come forward because they were so frustrated on the way history portrayed the family or portrayed the family. So, yeah, I'm, so, I'm so glad we got you involved. By the way, those of you who just yep. tuned into the Gist of Freedom, normally hosted by Leslie Gist here at www.blogtalkradio.com forward slash the Gist, we have Keith Beauchamp. And to call him an investigative filmmaker and journalist does not do him a service. As you can hear, he should be a professor in the case of <laughs> lynchings and Emmett Till because he's running down stuff that even folks who thought they knew like me, really didn't know. We have about seven, eight minutes left, so Keith, let me just run a few quick questions past you uh, before we wrap this up. But let me ask you, is there anything out there in connection with uh, Emmett and his mother, a museum, a marker, something something that folks can go to and begin to get the story? Museum, marker, anything that you're aware of? You know, unfortunately, Michael, no. And, and you wow. know, we're, we're still living in a time where you say Emmett Till, people are afraid to talk or, or mention his name in a sense. You know, I, I have to tip my hat to, to, of course, today's um, artists, people like Kanye West and David yeah. Banner, because okay. they mentioned Emmett Till in their songs. Wow. And now Emmett Till is now becoming a part of popular culture in this generation. People are now learning about Emmett Till, and now he's becoming a part of the curriculum in schools, but we Mm -hmm. still have a long way to go. We have to understand as well that the Emmett Till story was a story that was never supposed to be told again. Great point. We have to understand that because it dealt with the sex and race issue, a problem that we still have even today to discuss in a a public or open forum. 
So you, you know, you know Keith, Keith, let me let me say this before we have to wrap things up. Um, I'm glad you mentioned what you did about David Banner and and Kanye West, two of the great hip hop celebrities. My question to, to you is going to be, what's the legacy of Emmett Till, and can something be told about him? We know about the Malcolms, we know about the Martins. How will or whether will anything be done in connection with Emmett Till? Will that story be told? Will he have a legacy? Beyond what you said about some of the hip-hop stars, do you think something will happen with politicians? Maybe something could happen in Chicago? What do you think will be the legacy of Emmett Till? Well, Michael, there's so many things that has happened since the reopening of the Emmett Till case. You have the no Memorial kid. Highway in Mississippi. You no have kid. Emmett Till's Elementary School, Macosh. Um, um, Elementary school in Illinois, Chicago, Illinois, is named after him now as the Emmett Till Science Academy. Um, you have a, a, a number of memorials going a, a, around the country in mm. honor of Emmett Till. So, Wonderful. you know, we're on the up and up on that. I mean, people are finally learning more about Emmett Till. And, and as long as we have people like TV One who's willing to, sh- to air or, or to screen my documentary on the Till case or, you know, students eager to learn about Emmett Till where they're talking about Emmett Till and universities and colleges around the country and the world because I lecture year-round around the world about okay. Emmett Till. So, mm-hmm. you know, I like to think now people are finally – Grabbing hold to this story and the legacy of Emmett Till, and I should let me change that. Not only the legacy of Emmett Till, but the legacy of the late Mamie Till Mobley, because yeah. she hasn't gotten she hasn't gotten the recognition that she deserved. I believe that she was the true, the true mother of the American Civil Rights Movement, and I think when people hear her story and learn mm-hmm. more about this late Mamie Till Mobley, they will be blown away. I mean, this is you a know, woman that sculpted my career and my life into activism. You know, you mentioned the uh, screening of the untold story of Emmett Till. I don't know if you know, uh, Keith, but we're going to invite you and kidnap you, if we have to, to bring you to Philadelphia to do the screening right here at the historic Belmont Mansion. So we're hoping that you can make it your business to come to Philly so you can show this and we can have a panel discussion and make this thing go on. One of the things that I want to say is this before we wrap things up. Um, You didn't just do this investigative filmmaking on the Emmett Till case. You've also done it in connection with lynching general. In the last minute or so, Keith, tell us about that, some of the other cases you've been investigating. Well, I mean, from the Emmett Till case, I I produced a show called Murder in Black and White, which you probably recognize. Um, It was hosted by Reverend Al Sharpton. It was on TV One Networks where we dealt with four different murder cases, the murders of Lamar Smith, Reverend George Lee, who also lost their lives um, two weeks and a a month prior to Emmett's arrival to Mississippi at the time. They lost their lives that same bloody summer in Mississippi Mm. at the time. So it was important for me to tell those two stories because we often hear about the importance of voting. Here was two men, two civil rights leaders of their day, Reverend George Lee, shot while driving home um, after a speaking engagement because he was registering black voters. And he was also the first black voter in Tallahatchie County, Mississippi, in the Delta. Mm. Then you also had Lamar Smith, who also lost his life trying to register black voters. Lamar Smith was shot on the courthouse lawn in broad daylight in Brookhaven, Mississippi, and left for dead. 
No one was ever charged. So through wow. murder in black and white and with the help of Reverend Al Sharpton, we put, we actually told those two stories as well as Willie Edwards, 24-year-old African-American. Uh, seconds. Murdered, um, forced to jump off a bridge in Montgomery, Alabama by Whoa. the Klan. And we Whoa. also told the story of um, the Morse Ford lynching which happened in 1946, which was the, considered to be the last public lynching in America, where you had two couples, two black couples, who were killed and lynched. So from there, that led me to um, a special on the History Channel, which was jo- about Johnny May Chappelle. It was called... Second. A 30, ...about um, a 34-year-old African-American woman, or mother of 10, who was killed in 1946 during the ja- Jacksonville riots. In, in, in 1964, uh, I'm sorry, 1964. And okay. from there, <laughs> from there, that, that basically set the premise for me to have my own um, reality series, um, The Injustice Files, which is on investigation discovery produced by CBS News Productions. So I'm extre- extremely excited to be able to one, keep a promise that I gave the late May Mattel Mobley, which was to continue to tell these stories, not just Emmett Till, but to tell mm-hmm. the stories of others who lost their lives during the civil rights era. Second. To be able to set up a, a platform, a give a platform to the families who need justice. Okay. So the, sto- the show that you're going to see coming up soon, which is Tuesday, it's, it's going to be something on a whole other level because the first season of the Injustice Files, we dealt with civil rights murders from the civil rights era. We're talking about um, O'Neill Moore, who was killed in 1965, Bugaloo, Louisiana. He was one of the first black sheriff deputies in Washington Parish. He was ambushed mm-hmm. by the Klan and killed. And then we told the story of William Lewis Moore, who was the first white martyr of the American Civil Rights Movement, who actually started a one-man protest march. He was trying to walk from Tennessee, um, Chattanooga, Tennessee, to actually Jackson, Mississippi, to hand the then governor, Ross Burnett, who was a known segregationist, no a letter doubt. to ask mm-hmm. him to end segregation. Unfortunately, Mr. Moore did not did not make it out of um, Atala, Alabama, where he was shot and left for dead on the side of the road. And the last person we dealt with was Wallace Jackson, who mm-hmm. was an NAACP treasurer from Natchez, Mississippi, who received a job promotion or accepted a job promotion that was normally given to whites. And on his first shift on that evening with that new position, while he was on his way home, his car, his truck blew up. The Klan Mm. set a bomb underneath and blew him up. So from there, I mean, you know, from uh, I'm trying, trying to get, Segue into the new stuff that we're dealing with. Dealing yes, with. sir. Although I'm dealing a lot with unsolved civil rights murder cases and helping the FBI with their civil rights cold case initiative, mm-hmm. this next installment of Injustice Files is going to be even more riveting. And I say that because of the fact that we're actually dealing with the mysterious hanging deaths of African-American men that have been taking place in recent years that mm-hmm. echoes traditional lynching. So I will show you on this next installment of the Injustice Files at the end of a rope 
that comes on Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. on Investigation Discovery, that there's a huge possibility, and I'm going to say this because I want I want the audience to be the judge. Yes. There's a huge possibility that lynchings still occurs in this country. And to have that in your head, to actually think and know that something like this could actually exist is a horrific thing. We have to come together and realize the, the, the country that we're living in, we have to come together and understand that the mission of our heroes and heroes throughout the 50s, 60s, the 20s, you can go all the way back to Ida B. Wells, is not over. We have to wake up. And I hope that when people see this show, it will be a wake-up call to how much we have to do to move forward when it comes to race hatred in this country. You have been listening to The Gist of Freedom, normally hosted by Leslie Gist at www.blogtalkradio.com. This is yours truly, Attorney Michael Cord, and i got to tell you, I was honored and educated by Keith Beauchamp. We referred to him earlier as an investigative journalist and filmmaker, but as I pointed out, he's much, much more than that. In the last 30 to 60 seconds, Keith, can you tell folks how they can get in touch with you, if there's a website, an email address, Facebook, and finally, give us your closing statement in terms of why you do what you do. But first, contact information, and finally, tell us why you do what you do. Well, if you want to reach me, you can hit me on Facebook. I'm a social media maniac. I'll have okay. to Twitter, Facebook, under my name, Keith Beauchamp. Um, I also have a website, EmmettTillStory.com. That's E-M-M-E-T-T-T-I-L-L Story.com. You can go um, – You can, Find a, a, a URL, email address to hit me through there. You can reach me through there. Or you could go to Investigation Discoveries website. And, in fact, on the eve um, of, of the premiere this Tuesday, I'll be online answering questions. Great, um, great. You know, instant messages and everything. Yes. Using Facebook on uh, Investigation Discoveries website so you could talk to me there. Now, and, and Keith, so, Keith, before you yeah. give your final word, spell your last name. My last name is spelled B E A U C H A M as in Mark and P as in Paul. Keith, K E I T H, first name. Great, great. And and the last, thir- yeah, I'm sorry, Keith. In the last thirty to sixty seconds, just let folks know why you do what you do because you do it so well. You do it with such passion. You do it so professionally. I tell you, you could be making some dumb commercials and making a million dollars a day. Why do you do what you do for the people, for education, for enlightenment, for culture, instead of just taking the money and running? I believe God has given me a gift. Um, Early on in my life, my parents often instilled in me the values for speaking for those who can no longer longer speak for themselves. Yes. And in the words, uh, and I have to say, in the words, and I know many people hear me who knows me, they hear me say this quote all the time. If a man hasn't found something that is worth dying for, then he isn't fit to live. That's Dr. Martin Luther King's quote. Yes, yes. What will you die for today? Right now, what would you be willing to die for to make a difference? 
I got to tell you, Keith, I'm blown away. And, and, you know, often when I have guests like you, I'll make sure I know everything there is to know about the subject. I don't know anything about the subject compared to you because, I mean, you're an expert. You said you lecture at colleges, and I can see that because you certainly have done your homework. Uh, I'm going to try to reach you off the air at some point, see if we can have you back so we can have a part two, part three, part four, or whatever. But i got to tell you, you've done great work, and you're a great man. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Michael, and thank you for having me. Let My me pleasure. Have a good evening. All right. The most militant opponent of Booker T. Washington's philosophy of accommodation, the heroic fighter against discrimination, and the person who had more to do with originating and carrying out a crusade against lynching than any other was Ida May Wells. At the early age of 19, as editor of the Memphis Free Press, she began her campaign against lynching. Threatened by white supremacists if she continued her exposure of lynchings, she defied them, but took care always to carry two pistols for protection. In 1892, she published an article revealing that the lynching of three successful Negro grocers was the work of their white competitors. Her press was destroyed, and she would have been lynched had she not been in Philadelphia covering a convention. Miss Wells went to Chicago, where she joined the Chicago Conservatory and then lectured throughout the northern part of the United States and in Europe on lynching. She was among the first to point out the falsity of the charge of rape as explaining lynching. In 1894, she published A Red Record, the first book to document the crime of lynching. A year later, she married Ferdinand Lee Barnett of Chicago, lawyer and later first Negro assistant state's attorney in Illinois. In 1898, she was the spokesman for a delegation of women and congressmen to President McKinley to protest the lynching of a Negro postmaster. An active member of the Niagara Movement, she was also one of the signers of the call for the National Negro Conference in 1909 and later a founder of the NAACP. Mrs. Wells Barnett delivered the following address at the 1909 conference. The lynching record of a quarter of a century merits the thoughtful study of the American people. It presents three salient facts. First, lynching is color-line murder. Second, crimes against women is the excuse, not the cause. Third, it is a national crime and requires a national remedy. Proof that lynching follows the color line is to be found in the statistics which have been kept for the past 25 years. During the few years preceding this period, and while frontier lynch law existed, the executions showed a majority of white victims. Later, however, as law courts and authorized judiciary extended into the far west, lynch law rapidly abated, and its white victims became few and far between. Just as the lynch law regime came to a close in the West, a new mob movement started in the South. This was wholly political, its purpose being to suppress the colored vote by intimidation and murder. Thousands of assassins banded together under the name of Ku Klux Klans, Midnight Raiders, Knights of the Golden Circle, etc., etc., and spread a reign of terror by beating, shooting, and killing colored people by the thousands. 
In a few years, the purpose was accomplished and the black vote was suppressed. But mob murder continued. From 1882, in which year 52 were lynched, down to the present, lynching has been along the color line. Mob murder increased yearly until in 1892, more than 200 victims were lynched, and statistics show that 3,284 men, women, and children have been put to death in this quarter of a century. During the last 10 years from 1899 to 1908 inclusive, the number lynched was 959. Of this number, 102 were white, while the colored victims numbered 857. No other nation, civilized or savage, burns its criminals. Only under the stars and stripes is the human holocaust possible. 28 human beings burned at the stake one of them a woman and two of them children, is the awful indictment against American civilization, the gruesome tribute which the nation pays to the color line. Why is mob murder permitted by a Christian nation? What is the cause of this awful slaughter? The question is answered almost daily, always the same shameless falsehood that Negroes are lynched to protect womanhood. Standing before a Chattaqua assemblage, John Temple Graves, at once champion of lynching and apologist for lynchers, said, The mob stands today as the most potential bulwark between the woman of the South and such a carnival of take. The mob today stands as the most potential bulwark between the women of the South and such a carnival of crime as would infuriate the world and precipitate the annihilation of the Negro race. This is the never-varying answer of lynchers and their apologists. All know that this is untrue. The cowardly lyncher revels in murder, then seeks to shield himself from public execration by claiming devotion to women. But truth is mighty, and the lynching record discloses the hypocrisy of the lyncher as well as his crime. The Springfield, Illinois mob rioted for two days. The militia of the entire state was called out. Two men were lynched, hundreds of people driven from their homes, all because a white woman said a Negro assaulted her. A mad mob went to the jail, tried to lynch the victim of her charge, and not being able to find him, proceeded to pillage and burn the town and to lynch two innocent men. Later, after the police had found that the woman's charge was false, she published a retraction. The indictment was dismissed and the intended victim discharged. But the lynched victims were dead. Hundreds were homeless, and Illinois was disgraced. As a final and complete refutation of the charge that lynching is occasioned by crimes against women, a partial record of lynching is cited. 285 persons were lynched for causes as follows. Unknown cause, 92. No cause, 10. Race prejudice, 49. Miscegenation, 7. Informing, 12. Making threats, 11. Keeping saloon, 3. Practicing fraud, 5. Practicing voodooism, 2. Bad reputation, 8. Unpopularity, 3. Mistaken identity, 5. Using improper language three, violation of contract one, writing in 
insulting letter two, eloping two, poisoning horse one, poisoning well two, by white caps nine, vigilantes fourteen, Indians one, moonshining one, refusing evidence two, political causes five, disputing one, disobeying quarantine regulations two, slapping a child one, turning state's evidence three, protecting a Negro one, to prevent giving evidence one, knowledge of larceny one, writing letter to white woman one, asking white woman to marry one, jilting girl one, having smallpox one, concealing criminal two, threatening political exposure one, self-defense six, cruelty one, insulting language to women five. Quarreling with white men, two. Colonizing Negroes, one. Throwing stones, one. Quarreling, one. Gambling, one. Is there a remedy, or will the nation confess that it cannot protect its protectors at home as well as abroad? Various remedies have been suggested to abolish the lynching infamy. But year after year, the butchery of men, women, and children continues in spite of plea and protest. Education is suggested as a preventative. But it is as grave a crime to murder an ignorant man as it is a scholar. True, few educated men have been lynched, but the hue and cry once started stops at no bounds, as was clearly shown by the lynchings in Atlanta and in Springfield, Illinois. Agitation, though helpful, will not alone stop the crime. Year after year, statistics are published, meetings are held, resolutions are adopted, and yet lynchings go on. Public sentiment does measurably decrease the sway of mob law, but the irresponsible, bloodthirsty criminals who swept through the streets of Springfield beating an inoffensive, law-abiding citizen to death in one part of the town, and in another, torturing and shooting to death a man who for three score years had made a reputation for honesty, integrity, and sobriety, had raised a family, and had accumulated property, were not deterred from their heinous crimes by either education or agitation. The only certain remedy is an appeal to law. Lawbreakers must be made to know that human life is sacred and that every citizen of this country is first a citizen of the United States and secondly a citizen of the state in which he belongs. This nation must assert itself and defend its federal citizenship at home as well as abroad. The strong men of the government must reach across state lines whenever unbridled lawlessness defies state laws and must give to the individual citizen under the stars and stripes the same measure of protection which it gives to him when he travels in foreign lands. Federal protection of American citizenship is the remedy for lynching. Foreigners are rarely lynched in America. If by mistake one is lynched, the national government quickly pays the damages. The recent agitation in California against the Japanese compelled this nation to recognize that federal power must yet assert itself to protect the nation from the treason of sovereign states. Thousands of American citizens have been put to death, and no president has yet raised his hand in effective protest. But a simple insult to a native of Japan was quite sufficient to stir the government at Washington to prevent the threatened wrong. If the government has power to protect a foreigner from insult, certainly it has the power to save a citizen's life. The practical remedy has been more than once suggested in Congress. Senator Gallinger of New Hampshire, in a resolution introduced in Congress, called for an investigation with the view of ascertaining whether there is a remedy for lynching which Congress may apply. 
The Senate committee has under consideration a bill drawn by A.E. Pillsbury, formerly Attorney General of Massachusetts, providing for federal prosecution of lynchers in cases where the state fails to protect citizens or foreigners. Both of these resolutions indicate that the attention of the nation has been called to this phase of the lynching question. As a final word, it would be a beginning in the right direction if this conference could see its way clear to establish a bureau for the investigation and publication of the details of every lynching so that the public could know that an influential body of citizens has made it a duty to give the widest publicity to the facts in each case that it will make an effort to secure expressions of opinion all over the country against lynching for the sake of the country's fair name. And lastly, but by no means least, to try to influence the daily papers of this country to refuse to become accessories to mobs either before or after the fact. Several of the greatest riots and the most brutal burnt offerings of the mobs have been suggested and incited by the daily papers of the offending community. If the newspaper which suggests lynching in its accounts of an alleged crime could be held legally as well as morally responsible for reporting that threats of lynching were heard or it is feared that if the guilty one is caught he will be lynched or there were cries of lynch him and the only reason the threat was not carried out was because no leader appeared. A long step toward a remedy will have been taken. In a multitude of counsel there is wisdom. Upon the grave question presented by the slaughter of innocent men, women, and children, there should be an honest, courageous conference of patriotic law-abiding citizens anxious to punish crime promptly, impartially, and by due process of law. Also to make life, liberty, and property secure against mob rule. Time was when lynching appeared to be sectional, but now it is national, a blight upon our nation mocking our laws and disgracing our Christianity, with malice toward none, but with charity for all. Let us undertake the work of making the law of the land effective and supreme upon every foot of American soil, a shield to the innocent and to the guilty punishment, swift and sure. Thank you for using Blog Talk.